48 Hour Art Check, Best of Podcast. In this episode, Josh tells us why he tells stories personally. And I blather on about narwhals telling stories to each other by rubbing the horns together. The past couple episodes, we were going off of um, storytelling, the importance of storytelling, why storytelling is important to society and to human beings. Um, We kind of riffed on uh, Marshall Lee's comment about um, why he tells stories. Um, And so in this episode, I would like to know why Joshua Kimball tells stories. Like, um, part of this is because I wanted to push my episode off because I don't know why yet. Uh, (laughs) I don't know that I really thought about it on a personal level. And I I think I, I get the impression that maybe you have process that a little bit more than I have and I've got a bunch of questions for you so so Josh why is it that you spend a significant amount of time not just making art but making art in a specific way to tell a story yeah so man um, you know I may not have this all that worked out either it's a really hard question to answer why but I can say you know, there's a story I've told a few times, but it's like my mom was an English teacher. My uh, dad was a graphic designer. And so when I first discovered comics as a kid, um, it just seemed like this perfect fusion. You know, like I grew up in a family that like really appreciated art and literature. And it was just this like marriage of the two in, in, in comic form. And I remember even reading, like, the first comic I read was, like, a free giveaway at a library. But And, and I didn't, at the time, even think it was well-written. <laughs> I just thought, wow, there's so much, like, potential for this to make really powerful stories. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, what draws me to storytelling is uh, a lot of what Marshall talked about. I like that it's subversive. I like that stories um when you read them you have to sit with them for a while um it they're they're not quite like a discussion or a conversation um there is a conversation element to it but there is something to be said for kind of the power of a really well-told story that that kind of makes you sit with it and have patience with it and empathy with it and uh and it can do really powerful things so I've had different motivations for storytelling, um, and and I, I kind of don't want to get into like when I was a kid and when I'd write stories, what my motivation was then. I think most of it was fun yeah. when you're a kid. Um, a lot of it was mimicking, so I had a lot of superhero characters that looked exactly like Spider-Man, but instead of him having webbing all over himself, he'd just be a giant shadow, <laughs> uh, because... I didn't want to draw all that webbing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, basically when it, when I started really sincerely writing stories, I do remember in high school um, writing some weird kind of pulpy stories. But I think even then it's like I was going through my Tarantino stage, which is a joke I've always had with friends where it's like, you know, I think when everybody hits junior high, they kind of get a Tarantino stage where they just want to write stories where every other word is the F word. And there's a lot of violence, you know? Um, and then it's like you kind of, I don't know, hopefully grow out of it. Um, although there's some great stuff, and I, I still love Tarantino. But, or, or, or you become um, Quentin, Quentin Tarantino and you go make yeah. movies. <laughs> but, um, but there was, like, this thing, like, my initial, like, the, the first published 
kind of story I put out was um, the first comic I finished and really finished, like legitimately finished, like professional comic. And I submitted it for the Zarek grant. And the motivation for that was pure, like, revenge. <laughs> what, what do you Which, mean? Well, so I had um, I had gone through like a first love experience, had gone through a breakup, had gotten like slightly okay. into like drugs and all sorts of weird stuff in in kind of response to it, and I was just full of all this bitterness, and that was the fuel of my first story. Um, so initially, like the the making of it was like I'm going to write this like thing that just shows how terrible this person was, and then. Um, in retrospect, I, I actually, while writing it, like got older, weirdly enough, because it was my first comic. So I was like, ah, oh, it's a 24 page comic. How long is that going to take? And right. then it took me like a year because right. I had never really made comics <laughs> and I was like figuring out what to use and stuff like that. And, and then like, as I was doing it, I, I started crafting it more as a story. So I thought it would be cool if, cause, cause my ex-girlfriend at the time was a writer and I was thinking how funny it would be if I was working on this treatise about our relationship and in the meantime she beat me to the punch and got a book published before me about the same topic. And so that became kind of the this, the, the bit, like the big kind of um, catch of the story. And it wasn't a great story, but I did end up getting the Zarek grant, which at the time was a big deal. Um, it was Peter Liard, one of the co-creators of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And the guys who'd come prior to me had gone on to like win Eisner's and a lot of things like that and become huge in the industry. So I, I just thought that was like a first step. Um, but then I started really getting into um, autobiography and what that can do. Um, and I think that's always been a draw of mine with comics. Like I, I feel like I haven't seen that done enough in comics. And um, when I have seen it done while well in comics, it just really speaks to me. It's weird. Like, um, like Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, I think, is a really good example of, like, a strong autobio comic or Blankets by Craig Thompson um, or pretty much anything, uh, you know, um, like American Splendor, you know, Harvey P. Carr. Like, anything he's written is pretty pretty compelling in a weird way. And you don't even really have to like the character. I just like the depiction of truth and stuff like that and so um i kind of started to try to do that but i but i would but i became kind of fearful of like being too exposed with it because i figured if i was writing from my own perspective with real names like i'd be too attached to it and wouldn't be true anymore yeah so i did this whole graphic novel um that was actually you know, inspired by kind of going through the loss of my father. Like my father had died of cancer when I was like early in my early twenties. And I had just like transferred from a junior college and moved out of my hometown for like the first time. And so I was like living in a city that was unfamiliar and kind of dealing with these weird feelings of like losing someone I loved very dearly and like, didn't really know how to process it other than through art. Yeah. And so I was trying to kind of write a book about that. And at the same time, I was also um, at the point of kind of losing faith and had kind of become an atheist. And so I was writing. Um, I had lost my belief, basically, because I and, and so I wrote this entire book um, based on that. And 
and I spent like years on it. And initially, I had a publishing deal with a publisher called NBM Comics, um, which uh, they do a lot of like French republishing and stuff like that, and uh, and gave me editorial advice throughout the entire process of the book. And I finished it, and it took me like I'm trying to remember how long, but I think it was like five or six years. And I finished it like 128 page full color graphic novel and they were like well the industry changed so we're not publishing it <laughs> oh man and so then i went through this whole weird thing from that um i kind of ended up going to grad school um and there, there were just some really monumental things that happened uh in the process of even writing that book where i had just gotten kind of um like my wife and i had moved to portland um I just kind of got really disinterested even before the publishing deal was dropped. I just got kind of disinterested with um, like to me, I didn't find like atheism or whatever to kind of answer a lot of the questions I had that were deeper. Keep in mind, I'm trying to condense this in like nine minutes. Right. But um, so I, uh, I kind of had a lot of things happen with kind of like mental health issues with both myself and my wife and I was going through these struggles where like my own mind even though I was like a big fan of just complete rationality and kind of working things out with your brain where the brain just wasn't being very reliable and um, where situations weren't really really reliable like in the sense of like even when I had the publishing deal I I was at this point where I was just like hmm this is weird because I have a publishing deal for a graphic novel I'm almost finished with it my freelance career is going really well, and yet I just don't want to live. And it was this really weird thing. So um, keep in mind this is a span of like you know like 15 or 16 years, and I had built my whole art career at the time uh, as like an illustrator and was making a living off of that. And um, and and then I my so I kind of um, strangely became kind of suicidal um, and. From that, weirdly enough, kind of found God in a weird way, and I, I think it's more like the the reverse. Um, but that kind of changed a lot of my life goals, and so we moved back to California. I ended up enrolling in graduate school. Um, I started attending like a church, that, and that took forever to find because I'm kind of left leaning, trying to find one that's not right leaning. And uh, from there. Um, started kind of in graduate school when given the opportunity like the weird thing about working on your mfa is you have this moment where you can kind of work on anything yeah and it's kind of it's like all excuses are off the table all areas of blame are off the table there's no client to blame for like a terrible idea like what's the thing you want to do and that's where quarterly stories came from was um like a couple years of just hard work of like trying to I don't know, briefly was like, well, maybe I need to do painting and maybe I need to ditch comics and stuff like that. And, and what I realized was, um, after a while was that authentically what I want to do is tell autobiographical stories that are true to life where I'm not BSing about who the main character is. I'm not like hiding behind a mask of like a pseudonym. And I'm also not depicting myself like, like, I feel like my first comic, I was kind of depicting myself as, like, a, the hero of the story or the sympathetic character. Yeah. 
And uh, and so I kind of was like, no, I kind of want to actually paint myself worse than I remember um, and, and try to exaggerate that a bit. Um, and then really start kind of breaking down the craft to what I know it should be. So actually do like a full Heroes Journey arc um, and then make it so transparent that even the chapter titles are talking about the story structure that's behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even switching styles and stuff like that like a lot of that had to do with kind of some deep thinking that i had done during grad school that kind of arrived back at what had kind of initially got me to make my first autobiographical comic which was that i really like autobiographical comics i i i feel like that's kind of my voice in comics is to kind of tell true to life um comics at least for now and uh what's weird about that is like what Part of it's just telling a story that I, I feel I need to tell, which which is an autobiographical story about that time in Portland and about finding my faith. And um, and at the same time, it, it's also just this weird kind of compulsion. It's like it's it's uh, it's it's kind of something I have to write, and it's been kind of bugging me. And in grad school, it was like I tried to everything I could to kind of get away from working on this book until I finally had to just arrive at like, I need to spend a long time making this book and, uh, and it's going to be the best book I've made Yeah, because I'm going to spend the time to make it. I'm going to hand letter it because I love hand lettering. I'm going to put, it's going to be like a love letter to every comic I love. And, um, and if I put in the time and put in the craft, like I'll, I'll actually end up with a, with a good story. And the goal of it wasn't really to get published um, the goal of this is just to kind of make the best story I can. So I don't know if that it's weird. It's like a really heavy question. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of demands like a really kind of heavy response. But I can say like I think why I'm writing a story now is because I feel the compulsion and the desire to tell truth because I think truth leads people somewhere really interesting. Yeah. And I, I don't have the perfect answer of where it leads. Um, I, well, you know, and, it, like, and it might be it, it, because I, I believe that as well, but I, but I also believe heavily in the individual. And I think the fact that uh, confronted with any truth, uh, good, bad or otherwise, um, hard or soft, uh, it leads each person to somewhere different. Um, so so I've, got, I've got one or two questions on this because um, yeah. you, you gave kind of a history of your storytelling, um, yeah. but, but I want to know why. And so what do you, what is it when you experience, because to me it feels like you are, you're drawn to autobio. Um, in, 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 in both instances, you, when you found your faith and when you were an atheist, um, you expressed that, you felt the need to express that through an autobiographical comic. Um, because of maybe some prompting, some whatever, but also because of your experience with autobiographical comics. So what is it as a reader, what is your experience as you, as you read an autobiographical comic? You know what I mean? What, what, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what, what is it that connects you to that? What is it that, that drives you in that direction? Yeah. I mean, so that's the weird thing is like, I kind of think, um, as creators, I think we don't really, it's weird. I, I, on one hand, I kind of don't think we get to choose what we create. 
Um, yeah. I've met a lot of, like a lot of the guys at the NCS that are big supporters of my work are like New Yorker cartoonists who are doing like one panel strips that are, are jokes, like they're gag strips. I mean, they're, they're heady, intelligent right. gags, but they're still gag strips. Um, and a lot of those guys will be like the guys who like my stuff, you know? Um, and, and in the, in reverse, I'll, I'll be the same way where I'll be like, I'm not like partnering up with all the auto bio indie kids. I'm like, I'm really drawn to the guys who do the one panel gag scripts and people who do sci-fi comics and stuff like that. Cause I love that stuff. Like, yeah. um, you know, so it's weird. Um, but I do think there is something about, um, auto bio that's really caught me and i think I, I you know it's very cliche but it's like i um got really heavily into the beats and reading you know like jack kerouac's um books not as poetry poetry is terrible but um <laughs> like ginsburg was the poet of that group but um but his autobio is just really interesting and stream of consciousness and there's something fascinating about it and I can't quite uh, put my finger on it, but there's something about the format of kind of people documenting reality from their own perspective that seems to have this measure of authenticity and kind of rawness to it. Um, it feels kind of like punk rock. Um, there's just something kind of beautiful about it. And I, and I can't quite explain it, but I think there's also something that touches. And I think this is what I guess at its core draws me to autobio. Um, and I could answer a little bit of, I think what you were talking about before as well after this, cause I think it'll tie in, but it's like, I think there's something about it that touches on the horror and the beauty of reality. Um, and, and I know fiction can touch on that too, but there's something about, uh, nonfiction when it's documenting things that really happened, even if they're skewed from the perspective of the person who's writing it, that kind of touches on reality as we know it, which can be really, you know, oddly enough, stranger than fiction. And it can be really dark and really heavy and kind of start getting into some existential issues, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when I, when I was an atheist, what drew me to writing was the idea of existentialism because I was a hardcore existentialist and um, I was kind of the existentialist who kind of arrived at the idea of the point being that you make your own mark because there is no mark um, and so I had this whole theory on art and I thought that the reason people even were creating art was to kind of mimic what it what they aren't finding in reality Yeah. and so when when people are having like their existence filled with things that are happening that are outside of their control. Um, the, the, the beauty of stories is that you suddenly have a system within control with a creator with intention where every, um, everything that happens has a meaning and a consequence and an, and a reaction. And that just the mark that you're making when doing it is 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 declaring significance in the face of insignificance and so that was like my whole kind of wacky theory on it but i thought that art was like the purpose of life at the time and so that was kind of what drove me now what drives me is like this weird other thing um i heard this story this is a long time ago um 
after becoming a Christian, but it was weird. It was in grad school because you have to take like a ton of art history classes, like ridiculous amounts. Um, for your MFA, you have to take like, I think like four or five more art history classes, which is irritating um, to say the <laughs> least. Because I've told you I'm not a big fan of like rote learning. Right. And and that is most art history classes, even the good teachers. It's like you still have to remember dates and names. And yeah. um, I'm terrible with that stuff. But they were talking about this this sculptor who had been kind of um, working on this giant chapel, and they were up in the corner of the loft of like the ceiling, like carving these like birds into like this spire that was like holding up the roof. Yeah. And um, this person was like, "Why are you spending all this time on that bird? Like nobody's even going to see it. Nobody's going to climb this giant ladder to kind of see this weird little bird that you threw up there that like no one can look at." Yeah. And they said that, um, "I'm not making this for people. I'm making this for God. Like I'm making something as beautiful as I can, um, because I because I need to for my Creator." And, and so that's, that's kind of like the weird method I'm doing with this comic. I mean, I still want people to read it and stuff like that, but I feel like my goal is to make the best thing that I feel I'm supposed to make um, that I can. And then I also think that, you know, truth doesn't negate truth. And so I think that, um, you know, for me, because I'm religious, it's like I think God is true. And so I feel like, um, truth can't negate truth. So if I tell truth and I'm as honest and true to it as I possibly can, it's only going to point a light kind of to to God. Um, and and I've found that as a um, personally as a believer, like I feel like the road is a much more appropriate book to kind of signify like the the purpose of a God than than like eighty percent of like Christian fiction, <laughs> you know. Um, because I think a true depiction of like total depravity, which is like a heady St. Augustinian idea is, is going to be a much more powerful, um, uh, spokesman for like the purpose of God and stuff. It's so weird. And and it's funny. It's weird for me to talk about this stuff because that's really, that is weirdly enough why I tell stories and I hope it doesn't make me sound like some cocky, like weird, <laughs> you know, um, no, not at all. I mean, I, I, I think it's a level of vulnerability that most people don't get to yeah. publicly. Um, it, it, and it kind of ties in with quarterly stories, because if you read quarterly stories, um, that's, that's what really speaks to me is that it feels very authentic, almost painfully authentic at times where you're like, Oh man, I relate to that, and I wish I didn't. You know, you're like, I, yeah. that's not a that's not a part of my personality that I I would I would be comfortable putting on the page, you know, or whatever. Um, and and because of that, it, it can be a very therapeutic read. Um, but it's interesting. I, I now now I kind of wish that I went first because you've got all these these deep seated and, and and impressive reasons. No, no, no. But, but <laughs> no, I know, I know. Things. It's just. I, th I, I think, think there are other motivations too, and I think I think, uh, I think there know. is too. I'm just I made me joking, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just get on here and say I I like telling stories because it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. So there's another there's another side to this that I think is equally as deep, which is um you know like I've never been good at sitting on the sidelines. Um, 
I really fell in love with music and I the second I really got heavily into rock and roll like to the point where I was like going to record shops and like buying albums and stuff like that and saving money and like mowing lawns so I could buy the next album you know um I I pretty quickly like mowed a ton of lawns and bought a guitar you know <laughs> like right. um because I couldn't I, there was something about the fact that I loved it so much that I needed to participate. Like it wasn't enough to just, um, to just kind of sit on the sidelines and consume it. Like at some point my love for music just kind of overwhelmed me and made me have to do music. And it's very similar with stories where it's like, I love stories so much that at some, at, at one point, you know, I just, I couldn't not tell stories. Like it, I, I felt like an obligation to. Yeah. And this is like, I don't think this part has anything to do with religion. I think it's just loving something a lot. Like when you love something enough, it's like you're compelled to take action with it. And, um, and then there's another kind of corny thing, but it's like art got me through like most of the hardest periods of my life. And so I, I really do kind of want to give that back to people. Yeah. Um, like I want to give people, something like I experienced when I, when I'd hear a song that like got me through like the roughest times in like junior high, like there's certain songs that I can still listen to to this day that I'm like, Oh, that got me through like the first rejection I ever had in like, you know, elementary school or, or that was, that was what gave me joy during this like trip or whatever that I took at this time. And like, it's all connected to that song or that story and so there's there's a part of me on just kind of a more shallow level that, um, like, it, it's just cool that someone can do that. And so I want to participate in it and kind of make that happen for someone else. Yeah. It's such a heavy question, and it's really hard to condense. Like, I could literally talk about this for 10 hours. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of curious. Like, I'm really – now I'm, I can't wait for the Corey episode because <laughs> I think it will be fascinating. And I want to hear, like – you know, Scott, Matthew in the chats, I know you guys make stories. Let us know in the comments or in the chats, like why, why do you make stories? Yeah. Um, Cause like Marshall's answer was fascinating. I, I, I never get tired of like hearing um, people's reason for kind of making stories. Cause it's so weird. It's weird to me that we're compelled to do it, you know? Yeah. It's really weird. And I don't think it's easy to pin down. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and for me, I, I find it to be like quintessentially human, you know, whether, whether you're religious or not religious, there is an interesting distinction between humans and other animals. And, and so from yeah. a biological standpoint, I find that distinction interesting. If you're religious, then you feel like, you know, there's, there's some divinity, there's some soul, there's some something, you know, uh, that, that is that. But if you're not, you still have to recognize that uh, the ingenuity, uh, the use of tools, uh, reason, self, uh, self-reflection and introspection, um, and I, I feel like storytelling. Um, though, I do think animals do it as well. I was actually for, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but I was researching narwhals um, who uh, would, might be considered the unicorns of the sea. And, uh, and their horns, their tusks were um, often sold as unicorn horns uh, in, the, in the medieval times. Um, and I think it's Portugal 
has a throne made out of unicorn tusks that are actually just narwhal horns. Um, but their horn is a sensory organ that picks up data about the water um, and, and feeds that data directly into their brain. And they used to think that male narwhals would fight whenever they got together. But now they've actually done some studies that when they are rubbing their horns together, what they're actually doing is transferring that data of where they've been to the other narwhal so that they can say like, basically, let me tell you where I've been in the water by literally rubbing my horn on your horn so that we can share it. We can swap stories. It's exactly what people do when you haven't yeah. seen each other for a while. You're like, dude, I haven't seen you for a while. What have you been up to? And you swap, yeah, and you I swap think... stories of your travels. And it's a fascinating thing uh, yeah. that, that some animals, maybe all animals, who knows? We don't, I don't speak squirrel, you know, but like, yeah. but it seems like there's a transfer of information. There's a connection and there's, there's also societal reasons for that in a communal thing, because frankly there's there's these things that happen to narwhals where they freeze um they're mammals and so they have to breathe and they can dive like super deep for like 25 minutes at a time like really really deep and sometimes what will happen is you have an entire pod full of them uh up to five or six hundred and because they're in the in the in the north um, near Russia and Canada and the Arctic and everything, um, the water can freeze over so quickly that they suffocate, that they, that they they have nowhere to go. And so oftentimes that transfer of information could save, because they'll lose 500 at a time. Um, they just get frozen over and then they suffocate and die. And there's only, I mean, a, a few years ago, there was only 50,000 left in the world. Now there's like 170,000. But literally yeah. it occurred to me that that, that transfer, that storytelling, let me tell you about the water where I've where I just came from, could save five hundred narwhals in their in their pod just by just by sharing stories. And it's an interesting thing that that humanity does that as well. So I don't no, know. It's it's it, it's super fascinating. I know there's like this little um, kind of almost like a mind game that that uh, C.S. Lewis used to kind of go down. Um, where he where he talked about like who knows what the narrative of different animals are and I think this might have been the impetus for all those Narnia stories right. was the idea of like you know like human beings we're going through like our own little like narrative but who knows like what the what the mouse version of that narrative is right. or you know what the dog version of that is like maybe the dogs have their own kind of crazy history and um, their own little battles and crazy things that are going on. And I can say from having like two dogs, they definitely communicate. Um, they definitely, you know, there's something about when they're smelling, you know, on a walk where I yeah. feel like they're probably like having some kind of conversation with the dogs in the neighborhood where they're like, Oh, you had this to eat. That's pretty interesting. Right. I don't know if it goes to the depth of, of what we have, but I think that, that kind of speaks to our limited experience. And I think that's, that might just tie that back into kind of human storytelling that might have something to do with why we tell stories as well, because we have such a limited experience um, that there's something really cool about being able to kind of um, 
touch horns or whatever to bring it back to the narwhal thing and yeah. kind of understand someone else's experience for a little bit um, because we all kind of know our own experience but there's something really cool about either sharing or or being able to kind of um, participate in it and stuff now, now, so, here's, yeah. now here's an interesting thing uh, and this might be a whole other episode do we really know our own experience because I am not experiencing it as an objective observer. I'm experiencing it filtered through some fairly incomplete sensory data. And, yeah. and I bring to it my bias of past experience. And so, uh, you know, I think Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, before they changed the ending, the original, the original ending, you know, they have this whole speech. <laughs> it's really kind of weird at the end or whatever. But they talk about... Um, Oh, Matthew, Matthew Enstrom said, maybe narwhals do a 48-hour uh, check when they touch horns. I think that's exactly <laughs> what they do. And I think that's why their numbers are up. They've gone from 50,000 to 170,000. Um, but, but at the end, he, there's, this, there's this experience where they're talking and they say, um, there are as many versions of you as there are people on the earth. Meaning that there's the version of you that you have in your head, but then there's also the version of you that I have in my head and the version of you that she has in her head. And so reality is, is really only our perception. And if you think about just like the eyes, for example, your rods and cones are in front of your retina and your retina is the sensory portion. And the light that enters your eye, um, which is reflected off of other things, which can also play tricks on you, um, hits that retina and then is translated by your brain. But the interesting thing about it is that your rods and cones actually get in the way of 80% of the light that enters your eye. And so only 20% of the light particles actually hit your retina. And then your brain interprets 20% of what you're seeing or takes that 20% and interprets it. So you actually invent 80% of what you see, which what you yeah. see is very limited. And that's true of all of your senses. And my mind has invented this reality based on this limited sensory data. And so, um, and then I don't think it's actually possible for human beings to be objective. And so I question whether or not I do know myself. I know the version of myself in the stories that I tell myself about myself, yeah. but I don't think that's my true self. And I don't think anybody oh, else actually knows my true self either. And so there's this there's this whole other level of existence that's really fascinating. So and the whole reason that I tell this is because I learn things about myself by listening to stories about other people. Yeah. Because as I relate to other people in a more objective observational situation rather than an introspective situation as I relate to or conflict with different parts of their history, different parts of their personality, different parts of their interpretation of the world, I learn things about myself that I didn't know because it's not coming from sensory data. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's funny because for a second I was like, are we going to have to go to Descartes now? <laughs> right, <laughs> but, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but no, I, I do think the perception, like whether we can trust our own perceptions is like a hugely good thing for a topic, especially having to do with art. Um, it could even tie into learning art because I think you can't, especially as you're developing sight as an artist. Right. Um, you really do need to rely on like outer data. Um, which is like a big support for like 
why it's good to if you're not having classes at least have some critiques yeah um and honest do, critiques and do observational but, drawings but just uh just to, to what you were saying too i always feel like a, a big pointer to whether something's telling the truth about something about myself that i may not want to admit is if i'm like watching a comedy show and i'd be tempted to be the heckler in the audience um because something you know pissed me off or like made me defensive <laughs> right. um i think that's a really good sign is if you're kind of listening to something and you're like hey they're talking about me and you want to get defensive that's usually a really good sign that hey maybe they're saying something that like you you kind of need to hear right um which which i which i think is uh valuable dude so i feel like we're ver- we're diverging this has been a really good topic Next week will be why Corey makes art, whether you like it or not, Corey. <laughs> the favor will be returned. That's um, fine. Because now I'm really fascinated. I will say and this, though. Curious. I will say this. Uh, Stephen Henderson uh, said that he would come back on. And so I might be able to delay that conversation for one episode. Uh, those of you that are, are, have been watching the show for a little while will remember that when I went to L.A., um, it was probably a month ago now, um, I went with a writer, friend of mine, Stephen Henderson, and Josh and Stephen and I had a had a fascinating, probably one of the best episodes of Forty Eight Hour Art Check yeah. we've had um, about why he's struggling to to start Chapter Two, and uh, and we went through a number of different reasons of why why he's doing that. And if you haven't watched or listened to that episode, um, it's up on the podcast. It's also up on. Uh, on YouTube, and so go find that episode and, and watch or listen to it because it is it is really really good. Um, it's, yeah, it's one of the best conversations we've had. I mean, Stephen's just super intellectual guy and really well thought and very authentic and real about uh, his experience because he's ultimately up until that conversation has kind of failed to do something he feels like he's been called to do. Um, and uh, and actually and, since and that I- since that conversation has been writing more consistently and sending me samples of stuff and is, and is really on a roll. And so I'm fascinated to, to talk to him about his experience because I can't remember what it's like to get out of not being in that habit and into getting that habit because I'm so used to just having that habit. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm excited too, because I, I feel like one of the things that made that such a productive and awesome conversation was the fact that, um, he was, he was so like, in, in a really good way, very humble yeah. and yeah. open and honest. And right. that made that conversation so much better because, you know, it, it's an uncomfortable thing if you're like sure. in a position where you're an artist and you need to be making something and you have two people putting you on air saying like, why aren't you making stuff? Yeah. Here's why I didn't make stuff. Are you using that excuse? Well, then you need to get rid of that excuse and make stuff. Like that, that's a hard conversation. And I was, I was so impressed. Yeah with just like how cool he was about it. And also I'm really excited about the fact that he's taking action. So it's like, to me, that's going to be a really exciting follow-up because like I said, it was a great conversation. He's a good dude. And uh, he seemed at, at, he seemed at a point where that conversation might actually be valuable. Uh, And and it was according, according to the last time I talked to him, he, he's been writing fairly consistently and, and as, done a lot of things at those conversations and so yeah that'll be I, i'm really excited to actually follow up on that maybe that's even like a a feature of the show that we start we start having like a third guest uh to kind of break down all their uh excuses 
<laughs> exactly. Just find somebody who needs to be making and isn't. Yeah. And put them on the on the firing line. Finish him. If uh, if you guys are interested in looking at my work, you can go to CoreyKerr.com. Check out the podcast at CoreyKerr.com slash 48HR and uh, subscribe. Even if even if you don't use some of those services, subscribe and, and rate it because it's super helpful. Uh, it is now up on Spotify and Google Play and iTunes and Stitcher. And so um, if you have an Alexa or a Google Home, um, you can get the 48-hour art check now on your, um, on your home speaker devices, um, as well as on your phone and your tablets and your computer. And so uh, anything that you guys can do, we really appreciate everybody that was sharing uh, this episode. I, I, think, I think that is awesome that people are willing to do that and, and it's so cool. It's a great chat, good conversation. Um, and uh, special thanks to No Saboteurs uh, for licensing the intro music. That's Josh's band. You can go check them out at facebook.com slash no saboteurs. And you can, as always, check out the stories that Josh is telling um, on tapas.io as well as quarterlystories.com. Go to both of those places, um, and especially on Tapas. Uh, I don't know what you do on Tapas, Josh. Do you do you like it? Do you comment on it? Do you vote for it? What you can do that's the most valuable is add it to your library there. Okay. And so um, it's kind of weird, but that's how you like subscribe to it, and okay. that definitely affects the uh, the algorithm. So cool. yeah. So go do that. And and if you haven't yet, I would really recommend, especially after this episode, um, which give you kind of an insight to the journey that Josh has been on to bring him to this point to tell this story. It is a it is a fascinatingly raw and authentic uh, telling of, of an autobiographical. I mean, it is not pretty in parts uh, to the point where it, it is it is. Uh, a very emotional read, and I and I really highly recommend it. I think it's actually quite good whether you've had those experiences or not um, to to build up the empathy and the stories that he's telling because he's he's talking about anxiety and depression and panic disorder and 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 how it how it is to have a significant other that that is dealing with some of those things and some of the things that you run into uh, you know with your own self clashing with somebody who's suffering. And it's a it is a, it is a fascinating and, and, and deep read. Um, much much deeper than, than a lot of the, the comic fare that you get. Um, and it just it, it just goes to show the, the elasticity of that medium. So go check that out. And, uh, and while you're at it, um, if you were live here on YouTube or if you are watching this uh, tomorrow or the next day or whatever, also go to the, um, go to the podcast episode um, and, uh, and rate it there as well. Um, because that's, that's super helpful for both of those things. You guys rock. Thanks for being part of this, uh, and we will catch you in a couple days. <laughs>